Welcome to Square Root Justice, hosted by Rita La Therese. Where we will shed light, give voice, and invoke positive thought and reform on current and social justice inequalities. Welcome to Square Root Justice with Rita LaTerese. I am your host, Rita LaTerese. Today we have an exciting and a fact-filled show coming up for you. But first, I want to introduce our guest speaker for today, which is Dr. Joaquin Wallace. Dr. Joaquin Wallace is a dynamic and engaging speaker. As an educator, community advocate, visionary, and author, he draws from his personal experience to deliver influential and invoking keynote presentations related to leadership and coaching, personal motivation, nonprofit program development implementation, as well as financial wealth building and education. Dr. Wallace's life course inspired him to establish Project Transition Incorporated, a welfare to work program that empowers the working poor and provides access, opportunity, and real life experience to competitive within the white collar workforce. He also authored Welfare to Work, a practitioner's perspective on how to develop and implement a successful welfare to work program, which provides a holistic approach training program focused on establishing and enhancing hard and soft skills. Dr. Wallace was featured in Contemporary Black Biography, profiles from the international black community as one of the most influential African-Americans in the 21st century. Moreover, Dr. Wallace's accolades, including being the recipient of the Oakland Chamber of Commerce Community-Based Nonprofit of the Year Award, the Wells Fargo Living Makers and History Award, and he received a recommendation from both the Ford and Annie B. Casey Foundation Fellowships. Dr. Wallace holds a Bachelor of Arts in Economics from San Francisco State University, a Master of Business in Marketing, and a Doctorate in Public Policy from Golden State University. He resides in Northern California with his lovely wife, Jamil, of over 25 years. He has They have three daughters, Jamila, Sasha, and Kendall, and one granddaughter, Quinn Giselle. Square Root Justice family, help me welcome Dr. Joaquin Wallace. Dr. Wallace, thank you. You know what? When you read that uh, that bio, it puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure I could deliver. Um, I'm just happy to be here. You know, it's interesting that our our paths has crossed here because you know we met a year ago at the U.S. Open, right? Yes. We're walking out, and you were coming in during interviews, and um, you know, a year goes by really fast because the U.S. Open is vastly approaching and yeah. uh, hopefully we'll be able to make it there as well in the late August, September. Awesome. Awesome. No pressure at all. You've done it. You got it. It's been <laughs> you. A lot you of pressure there. No oh. pressure at all. Impressive. Ooh, Thank you for yeah. being on Square Root Justice. 
Yeah, got to be ready. Congratulations on getting your doctorate, Dr. Wallace. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very, I'm very excited. You know, that was a long, arduous journey. Um, you know, to have it, it's, it's great. I mean, it's a great accomplishment. It's, you know, you can't go any higher than that. So um, it's only, I think it's only 4.2% of African-American men who holds a terminal degree. So to be in that category is uh, definitely something I'm, you know, very proud of. Excellent. Congratulations again. So today's topic for this podcast is how life basics lead to the origin of generational wealth. And I know when, like you said, we met nearly a year ago and we started talking even with your wife who was present and you started saying, you know, what you do and what you've been working on. And I'm like, very interesting. I got to get you on a square root justice with Rita Therese. And we've had a lot of different things that's happened at the end of June dealing with the Supreme Court. We'll get into that as well. But, you know, your resume speaks for itself, which is very impressive. And so when we deal with, you know, there's been a lot of buzz, buzzword generational wealth, you know, going around, but how many of us really do, you know, understand what generational wealth is and how do you get to acquire general generational wealth? You know, I would say for some, you know, when I heard it, I'm thinking, you know, finances and property or money or assets that's been, you know, left to someone by, you know, family members or descendants, you know, that, you know, have you to have an, not an upper leg, but a better foot footing in life. So speaking of generational wealth, let's get into that and just talk about, you know, your perspective on generational wealth, what it is and how we even get there. Well, you know, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you hear a lot of uh, commentary now, more so now than ever in regards to generational wealth, um, trying to create it, you know, what it actually is and what it actually means. Um, it's like a, it's a focal point, right? People are talking about it um, in regards to um, trying to pass down the wealth uh, from generations to generations. It's something that we haven't really been able to participate in um, ever, right? I mean, it's something that we've been lacking in. I mean, there's a small few that have, but you know, when you look at um, some of the most noted individuals who've passed on, I mean, you're talking about Aretha Franklin, you know, Chadwick Boseman, you know, Prince, um, all these individuals who uh, uh, and have accumulated a lot of wealth um, yet, but they were not able to transfer it in a very seamless process. And in some cases, they're still going through probate, right? And right. so I think that the topic of generational wealth is important, but you know, I always say that generational wealth uh, begins with generational knowledge, right? So generational knowledge begins with, you know, starts generational wealth. And I think what once we understand that that generational knowledge is important to achieve generational wealth, I think we can take a different approach about it. You know, what's your financial footprints in regards to generational wealth? But for the most part, we know generational wealth is not for us, right? Generational wealth is for those who are coming behind us. And so once we're able to achieve and try to put things in place, it can be achieved. But like you said, you know, we've always heard about assets and, and just people passing on and, and leaving money, so to speak, inheritance, things of that nature. But for the most part, you know, we've seen um, that those instances has happened, but the generational wealth never occurred. And so it, it's definitely something that we have to take a different approach, more of a deep dive into. And I'm excited to talk about it this afternoon. Awesome. 
as we before we get any further, let me just give a spill on um, the definition of generational wealth as um, from a financial institution, Capital One. And they describe generational wealth as it refers to exactly what you said, financial assets that are passed down through families to children, grandchildren and beyond. Assets passed from one generation to the next might include cash, investments, property and more. Um, the Federal Reserve research shows wealth concentration, racial disparities and other systemic issues play a part in building generational wealth. And that's taken from Capital One. So one thing that you mentioned was generational knowledge. Let's expand on that a little bit now that yes. we know what generational wealth is. And absolutely. I mean, when you look at generational wealth, again, you have to go back to generational knowledge. And generational knowledge is it encapsulates a lot. I mean, it really does. Um, life insurance policies, long-term care, estate plans, which is, I think the number, I believe is 60 to 70% of individuals that don't own an estate plan. Right. So, I mean, I mean, that's large in itself, right. Um, assets, if you will. Um, we, how many times have we heard about someone passing away, leaving their home, leaving it to their kids and their kids not able to maintain it um, because they're not able to pay the taxes. I know in particular with my family, with my mom, well, my dad, anyway, um, he grew up in Texas. His family had uh, large um, farms. I mean, they just had lots of property and they passed on and provided it to their uncles, which was his uncles. And they eventually wound up losing a lot of that land because they weren't able to pay the taxes on it. And it went into court. Now they have a small portion of, I do believe now they own no piece of the land whatsoever. So you hear that oftentimes a lot that, you know, individuals pass on, leave this property and they're not in position to maintain it, right? It goes through probate. You have to go through those issues. We know that the courts only get a percentage of that. So it's so, so much that goes on in regards to generational wealth, right? But the knowledge is so important, what to do, how to do it, what's important to do. And um, without actually having a, a blueprint, so to speak, that's something you don't teach. That's something you have to go out and seek out that information. You have to seek that information out and, and talk about it. But again, when we're talking about financial literacy in our country, so to speak, you know, we're going to get into this, but we know financial literacy is something that is lacking um, big time throughout. And, and that's a byproduct, again, of just not having information, not communicating about it at home, uh, which transfers in a situation where we have uh, the inability to get to generational wealth again, because we don't have the generational knowledge. And, you know, it's key what you're talking about, the estate planning. Um, of course, I, you know, briefly discuss um, my sister and I were permanent guardians over our uncle who was like our dad and going through that with his assets and things of that nature and seeing how he lived and was able to generate um, some of his wealth. And, you know, it's unfortunately, like you say, you're going through the courts and so many of us, you know, um, I want to say Blacks, I can speak from lived experience of not having an estate, not having your will done, which all ties into the wealth part of it. Um, but I know we were, you know, speaking um, when we met some of the things that you were working on, some different plans and stages about, you know, how do you go about teaching the knowledge and, you know, dealing with you know, wealth and 
trying to get to generational wealth. We just don't get to generational wealth just by working and things of that nature. So, you know, let's talk, let's dive a little bit into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I've discovered, um, being a financial advisor, financial planner, um, I've had the opportunity to meet with hundreds and hundreds of clients over the years. And one thing that that's, that stood out to me is that one of the common questions that everyone has, what well, a lot of well, a large majority of them have, is retirement, right? So how do I get to retirement? And because they understand the aspect of working for so many years, right? We talked about, and eventually they're going to have to retire, right? That's what they're going to have to do, and that's a, that's a concern, right? And you know. The, the literacy piece of it all, and we're going to go through the model that created a model, but we, the literacy piece to it all is so important because, but is it the final answer? And so it's two things that you hear a lot nowadays. Anyway, you hear about generational wealth yeah. and financial literacy. Those are the two buzzwords that you hear common every day. Um, and financial literacy to me, in my opinion, it is important, but financial literacy, in my opinion, the way it's being taught is linear okay. versus organic. And when you say linear, expound on that. And then yeah. So linear meaning is just, it's just, it's kind of like a cookie cutter. You know, everyone is kind of lumped into a macro type of sense versus more micro, but more macro general. And this is the philosophy. These are things that you need to accomplish to be to get financial literacy. But I firmly believe it's it needs to be reimagined. So I'm on a campaign basically saying we need to reimagine financial literacy through education and purpose. You know, that's kind of where I'm going. That's the, the book I'm working on, so to speak, or a podcast going to have coming up as well, is kind of targeting reimagining financial literacy through education and purpose. So the education and purpose is the generational knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So generational knowledge, right? Well, begins with generational wealth. So we know that part, right? But what we what we have to understand is that I firmly believe that you have to look at it from more of a scientific standpoint, right? And it ha it can't be or it has it has to be more organic. And so, with that being said, great financial literacy important. You have to know how to budget. You have to understand savings. You have to have a solid credit. All of those things are important, right. no doubt about it. But those are not going to get you to generational wealth. It's a great tool to have, yes, but that's not going to get you to generational wealth because, again, we have to go to generational knowledge. And we know a lot of individuals who have great credit, who have understand debt, who can budget, but they're still having a hard time achieving generational wealth, right? But again, generational wealth is the final stage of it all. It's the final stage. So if you look at the if you look at the financial planning model, if you will, it's three stages. You have from age twenty eight to forty five, which is your um, your accum accumulation of growth. That's where you're going to accumulate the most assets because that's when you're the youngest to work from ages twenty eight to forty five. The age forty five to sixty, that's the preservation of capital phase. That's the phase where you're you're working, so to speak. Now you're coming close to your retirement from ages 55 to 60. And then from age 60 on, that is your retirement and gifting phase, right? So within those three phases itself, 
none of those phases really talk about really, you know, financial literacy, right? It's all about understanding those three phases. Mm-hmm. And when you, if you take it from that perspective, that's great. Financial literacy is outstanding. We need to have it, but there's more to it. It's more to it than that, right? If I'm working from, if 28 to 45 is the, my most critical age, when I'm going to make the most money, right? That's what they say. Then I have to have an idea of being involved in financial inclusion, which in financial inclusion, basically is being able to take advantage of the processes and the, the vehicles that are out there, 401ks, 403bs, um, investing, passive income, purchasing homes. I mean, there's a variety of things that there's, that's there in terms of financial inclusion that we don't take advantage of. I included. <laughs> I was let one me, of those individuals me, as let well. Me tap, let me tap into that a little bit because um, I'm going to speak as an African-American female, you know, I would say Blacks in general, not all. But it seemed like, you know, we're on the lower end of the poverty level because of, you know, what our ancestors went through, which was slavery. We lost a lot of land, a lot of resources, a lot of, you know, assets that we were inventors of, but we could never, you know, get the credit because you didn't have the capital in order to copyright or trademark something, of, you know, for or patent your invention or things of that nature. And so that was stolen. That's just history and fact. But I want to tap into, because you talked about the inclusion part of it, but not, but the inclusion. So you have those on welfare. My mom, I came up in a single parent household. We were raised on welfare in the system. And so you look at it like, to me, that is a system. It's almost designed to keep you there because when you try to do better, when you hit a certain financial threshold, then they take you off the system because they say, oh, you're making too much, yet you still may need assistance. And especially if you have kids or you may need assistance, you know, with certain things as you try to make it to get off the system. So when we talk about the inclusion method, when you've come from somewhere where you didn't have anything, and I'm not saying God has always been with me and I know God is with others, whatever your faith is. You know, he's our provider, but speaking materialistically, dealing with resources, when you don't have anything and you're trying to work, how do you begin to tap into the inclusivity to understand wealth savings to even get on the path of generational wealth? You know, so I'm going to kind of talk about in regards to welfare, right? <laughs> because again, you know, I, I wrote a book on welfare yes. and I had a, a program. And one of the things I said in the book is that the welfare check became the surrogate father in the homes of welfare, right? Mm. And and so because what happened is that as you said, you know, you make so much money, then you then they take you off the system. But what it also did, it created an environment where you didn't have the two parent home. In my opinion. Now, we know what crack did in the 80s. We know about that situation. But I firmly believe that welfare, in my opinion, was the single most destructive uh, force in the African-American family, Mm -hmm. simply because it eliminated the dual home. And if you look in one of the movies that I always reflect back to when I wrote my dissertation, kind of the backdrop was Claudine. And if if we all can remember the movie Claudine, 
uh, with Diane Carroll and, and James Earl Jones, it was a similar situation where Diane Carroll had so many kids and she could not be in a relationship with James Earl Jones, who was, who was name was Ruth in the movie itself. Okay. And if the circle social workers came over, they seen them together, then there was a, an opportunity for her to lose her, her, her benefits. If there was a situation where they came over and he brought her gifts, they had to hide the gifts because when they came and did their social workers do their checks, yes. they seen gifts, then they can remove them off the system. Right. Yeah. And so you have to, so we've come from that background, right? Into the eighties, into the nineties, into the two thousand. It's a perpetual cycle. It, we have not really recovered since then based upon that. Right. But if you talk about, you know, how could we make this change? In the model that I created, the generational wealth model, stage one of the model is basically the internal and external ecosystem. We have to understand the internal and external ecosystem. And an internal ecosystem is walls in. That's what you've learned. As I mentioned earlier, um, your fiduciaries, the person responsible for your finances, was those who was responsible for your welfare. So if you have a situation, an environment where that individual didn't understand and know exactly, um, you know, how to handle things, right? Then you have a, a, a scenario where you have a scenario where um, they're not able to really teach and learn. And and we know, and, and when you look at walls in, it's everything that we've learned. So that's in your innate needs, that's your culture. That's your social needs, right? That's walls in, internal, external on the other end is, is what we see outside. And we can see it as we advance out. It's, it's not a mystery when you find individuals who make a lot of money and who, who, who got a contract, if you will. They're mimicking what they see outside. This is what they see. So this is what they determine as success. Right. You know, why do they have to get to wear the gold? Why do we have to wear the big chains? Why do we have to get the cars? Why do we have to do these things? Because our self-esteem, self-actualization is driven because of the external, the external ecosystem. Yeah. So you're battling two things. You're drowning internal ecosystem, which you're learning walls in, and then you're dealing with external ecosystem, which is walls out. And so when you're coming from that environment, is you have to understand that this is what we've come from. So how do you you how do you change that? You know, what do we need to do to make changes? Well, yeah. first we have to acquiesce for one. Two, we have to be in a position to take feedback and actually talk about it. One thing we know in inner cities, we just in African American culture anyway, that money is something we just don't talk about. Right. And I think I want to tap in real quick. It's crucial. You said take feedback, but take feedback from the correct people. That's knowledge. Exactly. And that's important because we we got a lot of people, you know, giving feedback, but are they in position to give feedback? Right. And you see that now, you know, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, a lot of social media, if you will, the gurus telling you exactly what to do and how to do it. But are they actually equipped to give you that information? But but we listen to it because it's quick, fast, and hurry. Uh, it kind of makes sense to us, but it makes sense because we don't know, right? When you don't know, everything kind of sounds good. Okay, this sounds good. This sounds good. And if you're looking at, remember, we're talking about the external now. If I'm showing a person being somewhat successful in this realm, 
this is what they're doing, then I believe that that's success, right? I believe that's success. So if I believe that's success, then that's what I'm going to mimic. And that's one of the issues that we find and that's stage one of the model that I've created is that we have to have a true understanding of our internal and our external ecosystem. And once we, and that's one, that's stage one. Once we move to stage one, then we move to stage two. And stage two basically says is that that creates your financial genetic code. Your financial genetic code is a byproduct of your internal and external ecosystem. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I've learned. And we see it. And your financial genetic code is two parts. You have your financial trauma and then you have your financial anxiety. A lot of your trauma and anxiety is a byproduct of what you've been able to um, been exposed to, right? In your first stage, which is your internal and external ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's your first stage. And we take that into our second stage, which is your financial genetic code, which is your trauma anxiety. Now, here's the thing. You're never, you, you're always going to have some sort of anxiety and trauma. You, you find it with retirees all the time. If you lose your job, that's anxiety. Um, trauma that you've taken on from you when you was a kid, you carry that on. That trauma may say, listen, I'm not going to participate in financial inclusion because what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced. So I'm not able to move forward with that because I'm, I'm prejudiced basically on things that have happened prior. Right. And you, and people become, people are prejudiced, right? We're prejudiced because we're basing our prejudice on past behaviors or past instances. Right. And it may be a situation. Exactly. And it may be a situation that may have happened. We don't know, but again, that's that's that person. And that's why I firmly believe that when we're speaking about financial literacy, we're looking at it in a linear approach. To be effective, we have to look at it as a more of an organic, a circular approach, right? And so again, we have stage one, you have stage two, which is your financial genetic code. But stage three is so important because stage three is financial healing. Mm. This is important because we don't talk about it. We don't discuss it. And again, if you look at, and I, and I always reference the fact if you have two people in, coming together, right? Two people coming together to be married. You have two people that's bringing in two different, two different financial genetic codes, right? Two different, their, um, their in, uh, external and in, internal ecosystem is different. So now we're asking them to come into a situation to be one. That could be a problem because they have different backgrounds, right? And we don't know the exact numbers, but it's, they say 60 to 70% of divorces are financially driven. Mm. And you can see why, because you have two people coming in, bringing in all this baggage. You may be with a conservative person. This person may be conservative. This person may not be, right? Because it's how they were brought up. Right. you know, what their backgrounds were. And you have a lot of conflict with that as well. But that's why you have to talk about it. I firmly believe if you're getting, when you become married, if you will, right, you should have a, a, a serious conversation in regards to finances. You know, I tell the story, me and my wife been together for 28 years. 
And we probably the last three years have been able to really talk about finances. And, and we've been together 28 years because we come from two different backgrounds, right? And it's a very uncomfortable conversation. You know, it's it's one conversation that I say that you become, you just basically become financially naked, right? Because now I'm you're, you're seeing me for who I am. And a lot of people don't want you to see me who for who I am. They're talking about anything else, health, you know, whatever's going on externally, extraneous events. Yes. <laughs> when it comes to finances, that's something that's like off limits. No one talks about it, right? Nobody talks about it. And a lot of the, and I'm sure you can attest to this, as you grow up, it's a conversation that's never talked about. So it's hard to move forward. It's hard to get to generational wealth because we haven't really dealt with the first couple of stages first, stage one, stage two, and stage three, which is important. We have to reprogram your financial genetic code, which is phase three, to allow you to move to stage four which is financial edification. That healing, your model, I'm, I'm truly enjoying hearing you. It's very interesting. And um, what I find interesting and draw a parallel to is when you talk about your stage three, the financial healing is that, you know, like you said, uh, I'm not married. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to get there. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, when you talk about, uh, you coming together in the union and you don't discuss financial financial mm -hmm. finances coming mm -hmm. up. I say we were brought on a system. Mom didn't talk about finances, but I I'm correlating this. I'm wondering like, you know, most of our parents, you know, come from the South because of, you know, times back then, not everyone. And there's a lot of things that were kept to themselves, kept in, even dealing with mm -hmm. medically. And so today as our parents, you know, the baby boomers and, you know, generation before that, as we're now finding out about medically, they didn't even speak about medical. So, you know, things genetically are still passing down from there that we're now learning about as adults because they didn't talk about it. And I right. correlate this to finances. So, yeah, that that trauma piece, your stage three is very interesting. Well, you know, when you look at stage three, and that's why I call it uh, the healing aspect of it, but most importantly, reprogramming your financial genetic code, you know, because it's one thing that we just have to reprogram it. We have to kind of unlearn what we've learned for all of those years to kind of allow you to move forward. You know, oftentimes many of the clients that I meet with um, that are part of my portfolio, um, they're, they're really kind of stuck in stage one and stage two, they're not able to move forward. So they're not able to take advantage of the things that are out there in particular, though, I had a conversation. So this was an interesting conversation I had with someone okay. and she's one of my clients. She makes six figures. Um, I, she was one of my first actually employees when I had my, my, uh, my program, what for the work program. Now she's a high level uh, executive in terms of human resources. Okay. So we spoke a couple of weeks back and uh, I was going through the model with her and she said, you know, that sounds like me because in her stage three, right. She firmly believes that no one can should tell her what to do with her money. Mm -hmm. Right. Now she's married. She makes the most money. She recognizes that there's a problem. 
But here's the biggest thing that she recognizes. Something happened to her today. Her husband would not have the opportunity or the knowledge of where things are at. Mm. Goes back to generational knowledge, right? Not knowing exactly what to do, the insurances, where they're at. And it happens all the time, beneficiaries, things of that nature. And she said that she has to change her mentality to allow her husband in and yeah. to speak about money. And it's like a taboo kind of um, this taboo in our community. But I will say this, though, it's just not people of color. And I, and I, and I really want to make that clear. Um, so when I first was thinking about the model, it was, I was really gearing it towards the Brown and black people, right? This is what is because this is, this is who I am. This is where it's directed. But what I found it's not, it's not, it's not racially divided at all. It really comes down to the haves and have nots. That's what it really is. And, and it's not really a black or white thing, right? Cause many individuals who are not, as you call the Euro Americans, so to speak, they have the same issues. They don't talk about money in most cases, right? And the ones that do pretty do well, obviously, but then take it a step further, their financial trauma, and in case of those individuals who get to stage five, which is talking about financial well-being, but their financial trauma, they may be a prisoner of finances, meaning that they can't do things unless their specific stuff is being accomplished. They're being held hostage by the finance. You can't do this unless you do this. You can't do this unless you can do this. And you find that oftentimes a lot too, as well as they hold money as a carrot, right? And that can happen when you were as a kid, right? That's your financial anxiety or trauma may be a byproduct of those things. And you carry that through your life as well too. So when you get to stage three, the financial, the reprogramming of your financial genetic code, which is important, that's something that we just don't do. We don't talk to someone about finances. And they have a lot of behavioral financial individuals, financial mm -hmm. planners like myself, just to talk about finances to kind of figure out exactly where you're at. But we're so we're so focused on financial literacy. We're right. so focused on financial literacy. We're missing so much more behind it. And that's why I say we have to reimagine financial literacy. Let me... Um, let me ask about this because it's interesting. Like you, you said, you know, talking about the Euro Americans and you know they're how they're held hostage to their money. That if they don't have this, then it's almost like you don't have enough, no matter how how you go or how high is it that even when you get there, you're still not satisfied. So when you talk about being held hostage, then it um. It gave me the, you know, impression or the question to say, you know, even those that may be held hostage, is it a possibility that the hostage comes from, although it's self-hostage, it comes from knowing that you have financial resources behind you as a support, meaning your parents, if you fall you still have something to fall back on. You can go to your parents. So is that part of the hostage? Because, you know, like, yes, they work and they work to acquire money or to get to a certain status. But it, like you say, if they don't make it or if they're, they're trying to get to this or they got to hold on to money or I can't do this unless I have this amount of money, 
does that mentality come from knowing that, okay, yeah, I know my parents are wealthy. I'm going to receive an inheritance. I have something to fall back on, even if I do fall. Absolutely. I mean, you find it all the time, though. I mean, we look at the the show Succession, right? I mean, that's the true. I mean, you look at that show itself. You have a lot of uh, internal fighting inside of the family itself, right? And so, as I was saying, you know, my advisor mentioned the fact that, you know, what money does, it provides opportunity. And, you know, from that perspective, it kind of changed how I looked at money. And um, because it's all about opportunity, the opportunity may come into play if, you know, the opportunity to go to school, the opportunity to purchase a home, the opportunity to um, get great health care, right? Those are the things in regards to opportunity that money does provide. And so when you're looking back going to stage three, again, the reprogramming of your financial genetic code, which is so important. You know, these are the topics that we need to talk about that we just don't talk about. It's conversation, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's kind of taboo. Anything regarding to money in our generation or with, with our culture is taboo. And it goes back to stage one, internal and external ecosystem is because your internal ecosystem is what you your first introduction to money is. Uh, it's your first your financial fiduciaries is someone who is have your uh, well-being in mind, your welfare. That's the person that you're kind of driving from. You know, I still remember things that my parents would say, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, we hear those phases. Um, one that I always got a kick out of was, you know, I can't pay attention. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, you know, so you hear these things. And it's interesting because as I became a parent, I said the same thing to my kids as well. And and it's again, that's that, you know, your internal and external ecosystem. That's your innate culture that you just kind of take on and just don't really understand that you're kind of pulling all that baggage along. And so when you get in a relationship with someone, when you're marrying someone, if you will, or just dating and whatever the case may be, just when you're in a relationship with somebody, you're bringing on all of that baggage, you and that person is bringing it on. And that's where a lot of conflict comes into play because simply you're coming from two different ecosystems and what you know what i learned is totally different than what you learned and so now we're coming together and trying to uh, become one it's a challenge to do so this is so fascinating because it you see how everything lived experiences it ties into everything we talk about the innateness it really does you know the things you hear your parents say you know just keep on you know living and you know um robbing peter to pay paul Oh God, don't get me started on that one. You know, I actually looked that <laughs> up actually what that meant. You know what I mean? Robbing, robbing Peter Paypal, you know, and it's in my book, actually, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but it's an actual saying, you know, robbing Peter Pay. It's it's um, what is it? It uh, um uh, I gonna say it's 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 one of those sayings that is biblically driven. Mm-hmm. But it's a true story, right? And yeah. so you know, yeah. why do we say that? You know, you know, you never know, said robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, what does that actually mean? And 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 when we use it, it's basically not having money here and we're we're we're, we're taking the money that we're gonna go here yes. and then we're gonna put it over here yes. and we'll deal with that when it happens. But again, yes. you know, those it never gets resolved, basically. It continues yeah. to move forward over and over and over. You know, I I said in, in my book, I was saying. One of the phrases, it's like watching, it's like watching good times 
<laughs> over and over and over, right? And, and so, you know, you're watching, you know, uh, 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 one of those sitcoms when we were growing up. And here, the difference is that we were in the sitcoms, right? We were, and and our parents was receiving Oscars and and things of that nature because their acting was so was so spot on. Because we're just watching yeah. this movie, kind of regurgitate it's a perpetual cycle. We see it over and over and over and over, and we just we become you know best actors and best actresses, so to speak. But we're never able to move forward from that because that's just kind of the culture that we were brought up in and we just can't move forward. But, you know, I would say that's part of the hustle. And when I say the hustle, you know, going back to your uh, stage one, dealing with the innate, the experiences learning and what you first start seeing that kind of shapes and mold, molds you and us into, you know, how you move forward, how you go about moving, you know, you move this way, you move that way. And, you know, some call it the hustle, and, you know, sometimes you get off in the wrong things. Like you say, you look at the sit uh, come good times, which was all positive. But that was our lived. Ex we were watching our lived experience on black and white, then color. Exactly. So, it's happening right in front of us. And so yes. and, and so, you know, one of the things about the hustle you know, you always hear get rich and die trying, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, remember, you remember that, right? But, you know, and, and 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 that's, to me, that's where the issue comes because, you know, I, I had a meeting with another one of my clients and, they, and, they're, and they're doing pretty well. I mean, they're seven figures. I mean, they're doing extremely well. And one of the things that they mentioned to me, and it was interesting, you think about athletes and entertainers and things of that nature. But one thing that they said to me is that, more money, more problems. Yeah. And I thought about it. I was like, wow, you know, more money, more problems. Right. And, and because the more money you make, the more money you spend. And so they're at a point, this particular um, husband and wife, they're at a point where they have their financial anxiety. We'll say, what's the anxiety about? I mean, they reached a financial well-being. you know, we're going to get to that stage as well. But at the end of the day, they're concerned with other things, the ancillary stuff, the things you don't think about, you know, parents, they watching their parents in long-term care. Okay. Now who's going to take care of us? You know, their insurance is not in the right position. So they need to get the insurance policies in place. This is all about, remember, generational knowledge equals generational wealth, right? And then, and then estate planning, they don't have their estate plan in place. And so they have, a, even though they're at the financial well-being stage, Mm -hmm. which is stage five, financial well-being. That's where everyone's striving to get to mm -hmm. versus becoming rich. And becoming rich to me is temporary. We know individuals who have become rich. We know people who have inherited a lot of money have blown it. We've known people, we've heard of people anyway, that that won the lottery and it's blown. They say 70% of people that win the lottery blow it within yeah, a year. There's the stories right? about it. Right, yeah. there's the stories about it, right? I was just reading about the one gentleman who just won, tw I think, 26 billion. And they, he took a lump sum of 968 million. Mm. And they hired uh, uh, three bodyguards to take care of him. Oh, wow. But his first purchases was, he bought a $238 million home mansion i mean okay all right then he's driving around in, in a very expensive car right and so now we don't know how long that money is going to last but again it goes back to stage one your external ecosystem yeah. what i see outside this is what i think is success 
When I see success, when I think of success, I think of these things. But one topic that I know in stage five that a lot of my clients talk about all the time, they just want to be in a position at the end of the day that they can live their lives, not change their lifestyle, Mm -hmm. being able to be comfortable, travel, and have money in regard if something comes up, financial well-being. And that's why I say that in regards to uh, why financial literacy is is linear, we're preaching the wrong thing. What we should be thinking about is how do I get to financial well-being? How do I get to a position where I can live my life, be comfortable, and be able to absorb any type of financial hardship that come to play? If you can do that, you will be happy. Let me say this before we uh, get there, because like you said, you know, you hear the different slogans or the mantras around dealing with money and being in a game. You know, I'm just going to say it, you know, our drug dealers, you know, because of the innate environment that we come up in, you know, you don't have the knowledge you're trying to make it. So what you see around you is personified in order for you to get that what you want. And so, you know, I've heard the, you know, saying if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense or, you know, different things like that. So, you know, we're dealing with, you know, of course, in what was that, 60s, 70s, when crack came, you know, prevalent in the Black communities. Um, and it's not just in the Black communities, it's everywhere now, you know. Absolutely. Being honest about it. But, you know, speaking, you know, to the to the dealers, speaking to the, the street boys or the hot boys, you know, that want to get in the game because they don't know no other way. Um, and they... They're doing what they've seen, what's been possibly passed down generational, the generational curse that hasn't been broken. Um, Where do they start? And I I know we have more phases, but I just want to hit on that because a lot of Black men to drugs, to gun violence, because it's all about the quick dollar. And And you you don't have the opportunity, so... I really want to hone in on that before we keep going because so many of us in the black and brown communities are black men are caught up in that or they're serving time from doing that. Now that marijuana has been legalized in most states, but still it's the peddling, it's the pushing. You got to make that quick dollar. And when we look at the successes of a lot of the rap artists, they started in the game as well, but they were able to make it out as far as financially, you know, they had one break. And so it just takes that one person to recognize us, to put us on a path for generational wealth. But a, most of us, we don't get that. I'm claiming well, mine. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, I just want to speak to the, you know, brothers and the sisters that's out there in the game and, you know, try to help them, you know, understand as we're all learning here. You know, um, I, I, I have... A lot of uh, clients between the age of 28 and 35, 36. And one thing that they very adamant about is that they want to learn. All right. So this is what they want. They want to learn. They understand. They want to be in a better position. Right. This is what they want. They are willing to seek out information. And I really believe that education is the key. Yeah. Education is key. I, I really believe it. And a lot of people would say, well, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Now, I grew up in the inner city. And I say all the time, 
my role models were athletes, entertainers, street pharmaceutical sales, <laughs> which is drugs, right? <laughs> Um, but one that never, one area that was never advocated for was education, yeah. right? Education was never pushed on as a, a means out because we don't know, or we're not tangible. We can't touch those individuals. Oftentimes people who are educated, if you will, don't really come back and, or, don't provide an opportunity that they can reach out and touch them and communicate with them. So th th there's a different, there's another way. Yeah, it really is. But we don't really see that. I never seen that. So I chose athletics. That was my, that was my way of, of moving, moving the needle, so to speak. But as I, as I got older though, I still, I was so far behind in regards to the basic, you know, the education, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it but it takes it takes individuals and, and unfortunately in 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 life, and I learned this when I when I was had my nonprofit. Unfortunately, you can't help everybody. As much as you try, you just can't. Mm -hmm. Right? You just can't. You can provide information, you can give them opportunities, you can do the things that you feel that, that's going to help move the needle, but those who participate, they participate. Yeah. So you have to really concentrate on providing information and for those who want to be engaged, become engaged. Right. And yeah. those individuals that do, then you can really help them along. But what I do know is that when you look at the external, the external ecosystem, right, we know that your innate needs is important. Your safety is important social self-esteem self-actualization right the Maslow's five hierarchy needs mm -hmm. and so when you when, from when you look at it from our perspective when you go outside of that right the external side of it mm -hmm. you're basically asking for the approval right of your social environment yeah. which includes your self-esteem because you're trying to get to self-actualization yeah. that's what you're all trying to get to self-actualization but it's basically arrived Right. Yeah. It's that I've arrived, you know, and you see it a lot. As I said earlier, when you watch our athletes, entertainers and things of that nature, when they believe they've made it, this is what they do. And so if I'm looking externally, that's what I want to do. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned, there's a lot of rappers that pivoted. Jay-Z, Ice Cube that we kind of kind of speak of that's did what, you know, however they handled their business, but then they pivoted. Nas, yeah. they pivoted. Right. Because now they know that that's not the way it is. It isn't. But we have so many young individuals that are tempted because of that, simply because. Right. And I do believe it starts at a younger age. Yeah. We have to go into the school system and provide some sort of financial literacy that speaks to them, not at them. Yeah. And that's why I say that it's not linear. Most of the most of the programs that we have is a cookie cutter program. But I, you have to understand where this person has come from, you know, what they have endured, you know, what's their what's their financial genetic code? What is their yeah. trauma? What's their anxiety to move forward? And then the healing comes into play where you can sit down and talk to them. But they have to be able to talk as well, too. Right. Because that's therapy. And yeah. And it's key that that's, you know, so key is the relate factor, the relatable factor, because. Um, 
you know, I kind of attribute it to why, you know, have so many young black uh, boys or kids from the inner city that, you know, drop out of school or they just ditch and they're not on the path of graduating on time as they should. And then they're trying to go back and get a GED later if they so decide. But that's key is to relate the relatable factor. That's so key because I just feel like a lot of times when, you know, um, coming up, you know, just use myself for an example, you know, coming up in school, I had excellent teachers. I, you know, I was brought up around as they say, it takes a whole village to raise a child. My mom was always there, you know, as a single parent and, you know, helped us and did everything she can. My uncle who passed away served as like our father was there to make sure we had the basics so that we can have footing as we advance in life. And the key is, like you say, people, some talk at, but then you have those that are living in a ghetto, in the projects. I'm from Gary, Indiana, born and raised in Idaho Gardens, which is no longer there, but that was where I'm from. And so when you have people to talk at you, I'm not saying I had people to talk at me, but I'm speaking about or for those who've had that and they're like, oh, you know, whatever, because they don't know. But yet when you see someone like you, black and brown, because we're a large population that has been affected by this. When you, you know, see someone like you that can come in and speak your language or your dialect for whatever it may be. Because, hey, I, when I say dialect, look, when rap started, it was like a bunch of noise, you know, rap music. It was frowned upon by the masses in society. And look at it today. They're using rap music, rap beats, trap beats in education. Kids picking it up just like that. So it's very prevalent, you know, now. But the relay factor is having, it might take just one person to turn somebody's mindset around. But you got to come from and know what their journey has been. And and and, I, and that's the one area that you know I look at myself, and um, I always when I meet young guys or women, whatever the case may be, that may have their bachelors and have, may have their masters. The first thing I always ask them is, "So what's next? What's next?" And I tell you what, when I was um, when I was going for my master's program. I was in class and um, the teacher said, first day, he said, it's going to take 36 months to finish this program. And I said, damn. <laughs> I said, God damn. Just, I mean, I was like, wow. Right. And it was a guy next to me. And he said, it was an Asian, an Asian person sitting mm -hmm. next to me. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, that's what's wrong with your people. Mm. I tell the story all the time. He said, that's what's wrong with your people. And it was like, this was the first day of class. And I don't know this guy. And this is what he says. And so at break, I asked him to kind of extrapolate on that. Right. Could you kind of, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And he said, it's two things in life that is guaranteed. You're going to live or die. Period. Die. He said, so let's think of it this way. Let's say that if you lived 36 months and completed the program, you've completed the program, you're 36 months smarter, 
and no one could ever take that away from you. I said, okay. He said, just think about it. If you live 35 months and you passed away, you died 35 months in, but you're 35 months smarter than you were when you started. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. He said, just imagine if you lived like five years and you didn't finish, you would always say shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah. And it changed my life. It changed how I looked at things because I stopped. Because what we do, we look at the now. Yes. So we don't look at the planning aspect, you know, because we want everything today. But the, the how it goes. And so when I meet with clients, right, I would ask them. So I would ask them a question and I would say to them, tell me what you were doing this time last year. And then they would say, this is what I was doing. I said, I don't need to know the exact thing you're doing. Just tell me what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And then once they tell me that, I say, well, let's say you lived a year. So what's the chance of you living another year? What's the chance of you living another year? Because before you know it, you're going to be 30, 40 years into whatever you're doing. You're 28 today. You're going to be 58, 60 years of age. So it's important to plan now, today, and be patient. Right. If you consistently consistent, your outcome will consistently be consistent. And so mm. I always preach that is trying to be consistent, but give yourself realistic expectations. When you have unrealistic expectations, that's when you that's when you stop. That's when you get frustrated. And that's what you quit. What happens when we're in our in the neighborhoods we've grown or we've given ourselves unrealistic expectations. So when we're not able to reach those expectations in a timely manner, we get frustrated. But we have to understand that education is so important because it humbles you. It allows you to take your time and allows you to make rational decisions versus irrational decisions, right? And so if we go back to our external ecosystem, you talked about the, the, the guys out you know, doing what they're doing, trying to survive. To us, they're irrational decisions. But to them, they're rational decisions. But we don't know why they're rational mm -hmm. because we don't know what their internal and we don't know what their internal ecosystem looks like. We don't know that. We don't understand that. So we're saying, well, that's a rational decision. But in their minds, it's a rational decision, right? Because at the end of the day, you have to have your basic needs met. You have to have food, water, shelter, safety. Those are things that you have to have. You have to have them. And if they're not being met, then the decision that they're making, right, is rational to them, but irrational to us, right? And so, again, so when you look at the financial literacy, what I've, that's why I said we have to reprogram it simply because what we're looking at is we're saying, well, all your decisions are irrational, but we have no idea of what's driving them there. We don't know their the behavioral characteristics that's been, you know, uh, bes bestowed to them that they have, they're born into this. Yeah, yeah. You know, unbeknownst to them, this is where they were born into. And even myself, as an advisor planner, I was financially illiterate. I had to educate myself on, I was like the barber. You know, the barber theory, you know, I'm making sure everybody else looks good, but my hair yeah, is yeah. the one that's, the, that but, was me. Yeah, putting yourself last. Everybody Put myself last, right? Yeah. And not, not understanding that it's important, right? That I have to have a true understanding of what it takes and what literacy actually means. And so when you hear literacy, right, the basic kind of definition, debt, 
right? Understanding debt, credit, savings. We all went through that. But to, is that really going to get you generational wealth? Not really. It's not, right? So we have to look at the whole thing. Well, inclusion is important. We talked about that, yeah. right? Stage five. You have to be able to take advantage of the resources that are there to get to financial well-being. But what we're trying to do is go from literacy to generational wealth. You're trying to go stage five to stage seven. Mm-hmm. That that can't happen. You have to go to stage five to stage six, right? We got to get to generational knowledge. We have to understand the knowledge aspect. And like you said, you're going through an estate situation right now. Yeah. If we have 60, 70% of the population don't have a state plan, I mean, that's a lot. And we don't, we know in that black and brown communities, it's even more than that. Yeah. Right. We probably about 95, probably 99.9%, right, in our communities. And it's so key that, you know, learning about, you know, estate planning and things of that nature. But it's, you know, what you talk about, the inclusion piece, and that um, going back to environmental survival, and that um, not knowing what others have been through, but it relates to when you per se don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. Although you've been in this environmental structure of hustling and trying to make it, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, the other sayings, you know, if um, just like you go to counseling, you got to dive deep, as they call it, in order to pull out that hurt that's deep in there so that you can totally heal. And it's just very interesting to me how all of this, your model, which we're not done talking about, but your model, life experiences, how it all relates, it truly is holistic. And I just say, you know, even one of my models is, you know, um, justice is holistic, let's get better together. You know, the fact of bringing everything together to understand and to actual see if you can actually see your footprint, I remember um, watching Oprah and there was some type of uh, machine out, they were a medical device where you can see the internal organs, the whole inside of your body. I don't remember what the name was, but Oprah talked about this on her show and she was so fascinated by it. If I could just personally speaking, have something like that to see my footprints of where I started, where I went to see the levels. I think that's so beneficial for so many of us to grasp, even if you've made it or you've achieved, but the saying say, you never, you've never fully arrived. I've heard that in a, um, a marriage counseling seminar that you never fully arrive. If you've done that, then it's no more existence for you to be here. So you never fully arrive, but just to see where you come from, where you started and your plight or your path to where you are now. I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, because you look at, you know, you're trying to say reach your higher self, basically, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I recall when I when I left, because I, I was, I used to coach uh, college basketball, coached that for nine years and at mm-hmm. the, the, the university level. And I remember I left and I, um, they provided me a statement with my 403B. And I looked at it and I've been there for nine years and only had $34,000 in there. Mm-hmm. And 
I was just just like this. I worked this long, and this is all I have, mm-hmm. right? And and I look back at that. That was because my financial inclusion. Mm-hmm. I didn't take advantage of the true sense of it all, right? But it was a byproduct of a couple of things. And I hear this all the time when I talk to people. 90% of the time that you participate in any type of job-related qualified plan, whether it's 403B, 457, um, 401Ks, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. 90% of the time that you're participating in those because someone said do it. Yes. Right? So you have no idea why you're doing it, but you're doing it. But we also know that once I participate in this plan, we're just going to use a round number of a thousand. They say, okay, well, you 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 participate 10%, right? You take 10% and you get paid versus a thousand dollars, you get nine hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. You say, oh no, I can't do that because I need all my money. Mm-hmm. Well, that by that decision again stems from your internal ecosystem. Yes. Because when you were young, you remember how it was growing up. You recall that. You recall not, you know, not putting money in the bank because you're unbanked. You don't trust the system. You want all of your money because I need all of my money. Yeah. Versus saying, you know what, this is deferred comp, deferred situation. Defer taxes, maybe you know, I'm gonna get taxed later on. And you're gonna get taxed for less money because versus getting taxed for a thousand dollars, you're gonna get taxed for nine hundred dollars. You know, you're not really thinking about that. You just want all your money. And it's so often that I meet with clients and they would say, I've worked 30 years or 25 years, and I only have half a million dollars or three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in my 401k. So it goes now, there's your financial anxiety. There's your anxiety right there, because now you know that your runway is short because you're about to land and your financial well-being is is going to be questioned now. Because remember, financial well-being basically says I can live my life. I don't have to change my lifestyle. I can do the things I want to do and be comfortable. Well, now that's not going to be the case because now I have to use the money. And so how how am I going to survive off of $300,000? So what winds up happening, you start working longer. You start working much harder. And remember, we talked about from the accumulation phase from 28 to 45, that's when you're at the, the, you know, you're most healthiest to work, so to speak. Yeah. From 45 to 60, you're on the downside. You're looking to retire at that point. But you find a lot of us working harder from ages 58 to 65 to 70 simply because the financial trauma is in play and they know that their landing is not going to be a soft landing because they didn't prepare because in terms of the financial inclusion, they didn't take advantage of it. But the reason why they didn't take advantage of it, because in stage three, we talked about reprogramming your financial genetic code. You never spoke about it. And so now it's all came, it's, it's come up and kind of caught you now in a situation where you have to make decisions and it's uncomfortable conversations now because you know that your lifestyle is going to be impacted greatly. Yeah, yeah. So true. Yeah, so true. Um, I think um, a lot of people, you know, losing their jobs and things of that nature. You, I think some 
I would like to say that some planning is there. Like, even if they say, no, I want all of my money now, or, you know, you do, you put into your 401k because you know, you're going to need it down the road, but you don't diversify too much outside of what your employer says is available to you because of potentially the lack of knowledge. And that's where, you know, I, you know, from serving as guardian for my uncle, I see the lot of an inclusion and the diversification that he did. And Absolutely. I, I wish I had known that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and that's what it comes down to. You know, I I, I, I mentioned that I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this. I was on a plane. I was uh, took a trip to Texas. I, I, I was a guy that was sitting next to me. Um, this is a Euro-American guy, white guy sitting next to me. We just start talking. And uh, he, his, he and when, we, when I look at um, when I say landings and, and, and things of that nature, runways where he 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 was forced to retire at 52. Mm-hmm. And he he delved into his 457 plan so he had a pension plan remaining mm-hmm. and his main concern was how was he going to live for the you know the remainder of his life well he's 52 so he's still young enough to go to work but he spent so much money out of his 457 plan for one and he didn't take full advantage of it he didn't invest fully in involved in didn't take advantage because he never spoke to someone. So his response was now, you know, I, I tell my son to do this. I tell my daughter to do this because yeah. now he's, he's taking that information that he didn't know. He's trying to transfer that knowledge. He yeah. didn't have, a, he didn't have an estate plan in place. You know, he didn't have his life insurance in place. He didn't have a long-term care policy in place. That's a whole different element. That's a total a, a ball of wax there because, you know, long-term care is so important because Ooh. we're living longer. Yeah. So we're living so much longer now, right? And so when you look at long-term care, just use just throwing some numbers out, $7,000 per month today if you're in a long-term care facility. Average, and that's if you're in private pay. When I told that's you, that's exactly a lot about my uncle. I learned a lot, and when you speak of this long-term care, I don't think what a lot of people know when you're dealing with long-term care is that, like normally, you're like, well, okay, I know I'm going to get Medicare, but what the government and Medicare has done is they have combined with a lot of the employers. So your insurance, say for instance, if you're working now, uh, say for instance, if you have you know, uh, Aetna. I'll speak right. and learn from, you know, through my uncle. Well, it's called Aetna Medicare or Medicare Aetna, yes. one of the ways, because it's almost like your employer has gone through this employer, but the insurance company has some type of benefit with the government so that Medicare pays a portion, your insurance pays a portion. And so they've solidified it into one, whereas you don't get all the benefits that you had when you were working with your mm-hmm. insurance plan, although you're with them, it's kind of driven now by Medicare. Yeah. And 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 and, and when you look at that, and so it's seven thousand a day, right? We talked about that. Well, in twelve years is estimated to be fifteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, per month. It's estimated to be fifteen thousand. Yeah. In in fifteen twelve to fifteen years. And some are there because and I, I can honestly attest to what you're saying. Because we had to move my uncle. I didn't know I would get into this. But um, the place that we wanted to put him in was when they told us one month, that included, it was like 11.3, 11.4 thousand per month. Per month. Per month. 
And that was because of his medical needs. And that's, of course, their cost. He was private pay. He had too much assets. So Medicare paid for limited things. They might have paid, you know, for the mattress to go on his bedding or whatever. But, you know, just basic. And when you're on private pay like that, even in dealing with like Medicare, they rented his wheelchair. And so, you know, we had to turn all this back in. They were renting for so long after such a period, then you own it. But if you pass away, as my uncle did, prior to the period, the rental period is up, then you give that back to the companies in which Medicare is paying for it. So, yeah, it is. Um, it was very eye opening. It, and it's extremely. And so that goes back to when I say generational knowledge, right? Generational wealth begins with generational knowledge, because oftentimes what happens is that if you don't know these things and don't take care of these things on the early end, you're paying that out of pocket. Yes. And which is virtually impossible to transfer the knowledge. So you may have a home. You might, you might, but you may have to give up that home, especially if you go to Medicare, right? Because they they will take a lien on your home as well. Yeah. You have to you have to spend down your assets. Uh so all of these things are things that we don't know. So when we're saying, so when I hear the term, you know, generational knowledge, you know, or generational wealth, you know, I always go back to we have to have the generational knowledge to get to generational wealth yes. because if you, if you don't, it's virtually impossible to get there without having the knowledge and the knowledge just isn't about accumulating assets. Yeah. That's probably the easiest part, right? The hardest part is creating the footprints that allow you to have the, um, the wealth in place. So it's having the insurance policies in place um, or having a long-term care rider on in place as well. It's having um, a term policy for your home. You know, just the basic stuff, um, um, you know, getting a long term care rider on your insurance policy, making sure that you have your estate plan in place to make sure that you have your your um, HIPAA signed, your your medical signed, your your, your POA, your power, power your power of return. All yeah. of that stuff needs to be signed because at some point you may not be in a position to do so. So you have the irrevocable and revocable side of it. But here, here's another stat for you in regards to what we're speaking about. There's a stat that basically says that if, if you're a married couple and if you're married to age 65, there's a, there's a 70% chance that you're going to, the two of you, 70% chance you're going to reach age 80, 82 to 85, right? But two of you. But eventually though, eventually what we do know is that one of you two will be by yourselves, right? So someone's going to die before the other. Mm -hmm. At that point, when that happens, that person is going to be solely reliant on your, right? On with your terms of resources for them to survive, right? Yeah. Continue on. So it's important that we you have to have those things in place and have all of those documentation signed and, and things of that nature because it's going to be you two, then it's going to be you, and then eventually it's going to be both of you guys are going to be gone. And then you have all these assets that are sitting there that sit in probate that's not going to be able to move forward. Yeah. So it, when, when I hear about generational knowledge, um, I always say, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great, I mean, a generational wealth is a great topic, but it's it's like on the surface. It, okay, yeah. that's great, but it's more to it than that. Yes, it, it is. Um, it is a lot. I during that process. So excuse me, during that process, it was um very eye opening. 
um, having to research and learn and talk to doctors, talk to the insurance companies. And like I say, you had to do a due diligence. It just wasn't taken care of to make sure it was medically, but knowing what he had, so you would know how to use to take care of him. And it is very eye-opening. And a lot of the, you know, your employers, they don't share that information with you long, you know, like you talk about the long-term writer. So it's, um, yeah. But, and that's your, and that goes to your financial anxiety. And that's why I say, you know, on the model itself, once you begin adulthood, you know, once you begin adulthood, you will always be on one of those stages. One, two, three, four, five, six, but we're all striving to get to seven, which is generational wealth. That's what we're trying, we're trying to create our footprints. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're always circulating through that model. So you may be doing extremely well. You had financial well-being, right? Stage five. But okay, now I'm getting ready to retire, or I need to get my I need to get my estate plan because I need to transfer my wealth, mm -hmm. so that you're going to be on there. You may be at stage one, and you're trying to get to stage four. Well, financial edification, well, that's important, but virtually impossible if I don't go through <laughs> number three, reprogramming your financial genetic code, because now I have to acquiesce, take advice, become vulnerable, learn to move forward. Mm -hmm. which is something that is very, because money, again, money is something that's very personal. Yeah. That's something you just don't want to talk about. We talk about everything else, but money is, it's kind of an off limits it's conversation. Like a it's it, a secret. It's, it's off secret. limits. It's off limits. Wow. I, I tell you, I, your cycle, I, I know it. Once it gets out there to listeners, you guys reach out to Dr. Uh, Wallace <laughs> But it is very interesting. And like I said, you know, being in my late 40s, it's um, this has been very eye opening, even dealing with the experience with my uncle and, you know, learning quite a quite a bit. Um, you know, I just hope as you know, the listeners listen to this, that, you know, they are educated and take things into a pers different perspective and start to think differently on even excuse me, how they may diversify money that they do have. Like, you know, I had a pastor that would say, you know, I got more time behind me than I do ahead of me. And 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 what he's saying is that, OK, you're of age. You've lived most of your good years mm -hmm. behind you. And like you talk about making a soft landing, your pathway or your runway that you can continue to run on is shorter um, as far as you being able to accumulate, you know, money, older and things like that. And so, you know, just to hear that, I'm. Like, for those of you who are listening or will hear this, you know, look at, I'm not saying get in the market, ride it, lose, you know, you can be conservative or you can go ahead and do it if you have the time, be more liberal, but diversify. I didn't know yeah. that until I started having to deal with my uncle stuff and he started talking and telling me things, you know, I didn't pick up, you know, on it that, you know, this may have been his final stage because I was busy trying to take care and protect him, you know? And like you said, you know, you put everybody else before you and you're on a back burner, like way on a back burner. Yeah, absolutely. You know? you know, but one thing that I like to add is that, you know, people that are wealthy, right? Wealthy people, they don't, it's, it's different conversations. Wealthy people say, I don't want to be rich. That's what we say. I'm trying to be rich. No, they say, I want to be wealthy, right? That's the first thing. But wealthy people, what they do, they take advice. They listen 
and they let the experts do what they do. Mm-hmm. They don't try to do, they stay in their own lanes. What we do, again, we seek out information from individuals that aren't qualified. So there's a lot of information that's being said and, and people have tons of followers, thousands of followers of a concept, if you will. And it's only specifically for that specific thing. And, you know, I say when people start selling stuff or a specific uh, product, if you will, most likely that's all they can do. Right. So they're going to sell that product. They're going to push that product, whether it's IUL insurance, you hear that a lot, overfunding insurance policies. Great. Yes, you can do those type of things, but you have to understand the mechanics behind it. It's not as easy as people make it seem to be because it's not right. If it was, everybody would be doing it. Right. And so as again, diversifying is important. It is important. But again, you have to really want to take on the information and seek out information from those who can give it to you. And, and one thing that I say as well, it's kind of set up in, in terms of media, you know, you, and I may be wrong, but from what I've seen, you, you rarely see a person of color speak to a family of color about finance. Yes. Right? When you, when you see commercials, swap, <laughs> fidelity, whatever the case may be, is never a person of color speaking to a person of color. Mm-hmm. So in 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 my opinion, it becomes difficult for a person of color to speak to, to a person of color and because they don't see it. Let me just jump in on that because I, I think part of the issue that comes with that is trust. You know, going back to your innate, going all the way back to stage one mm-hmm. and lived experiences and um, trials, tribulations, whatever it is that you've been through is trust and, you know, Think about this now. Think think yeah. about what you're gonna say. Yeah, you <laughs> is I'm I'm not giving advice, but I'm thinking as far as things that I've heard from other people as far as being trustworthy or like you say when you go and you listen to somebody, most of the time it's not someone that reflects them. Absolutely. So, you know, is that a trust factor? Because a lot of times, you know, you go to someone and you're thinking you're doing the right thing. That goes back to knowing and establishing a relationship or rapport, you know, that you will feel comfortable that this is all your life savings. This is what you work hard for, that you're going to trust this in somebody's hand. And yes, you have the, excuse me, the financial, um, like you, the planners and, you know, things that can help you guide your money, you know, for the long term. But that really goes back to the innate and being able to trust and having some bit of knowledge to look at things yourself. And like you say, people want advice or you have to want to listen or seek out advice to be able to do that. And, and, and you I need just to, think that's, that's, that's so important, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I really, and that's why I say that it, the educational aspect is important. I really do. You know, so, you know, I look at myself as an example, I have a BA in economics, a bachelor's in marketing, doctorate in public policy. I have a 66365. So FINRA, SEC, they have all the license to do the business that I do. And so I I find that to me, that's important because when I meet with my clients, I'm you can bet me and do what you need to do. But for the most part, 
from this educational aspect alone, I know that he has the education because mm-hmm. he's put in the time. Mm-hmm. And I know that he has, you know, because you can vet people like myself and FINRA and you can find out exactly if there's any disclosures, if you will, against us and know what we're doing, what we're doing right or wrong. Right. But for the most part, you know, th- th- you have all of that. And that's just more tools in the toolbox, more tools in the toolbox. But for what I do, I don't sell product. I educate. Mm-hmm. I educate. That's my job is to educate, pay it forward, so to speak. Now I, I can do those things. I can do those things, but I never, you never hear me selling a product. I'm always educating. I, I'm, I'm going to um, play the devil's advocate. And for those who are wondering and they're saying, well, how do I know I can trust you? Yes, I can go online, do some research about you, look it up, make sure your license is active, you're good through the state, you got all oh, your registers, you got an official license ID number. Yeah, you can do all of that. But how to give give us and give the listeners some points and how they know they can trust you. And I'm not saying you per se, but right. somebody that wants to go to a financial advisor, they have money. They mm-hmm. don't trust the institutions. They don't trust the system. And it's true. People still keep their money in a bag under the mattresses in the home or whatever, because they don't trust the institutions. What are some nuggets? Give, give the listeners some nuggets and how they can trust financial advisors that they feel comfortable putting their hard-earned money with well, advisors to help them. That's a great point because as a financial advisor, you're you're sworn to be a fiduciary, mm-hmm. right? So in a fiduciary, basically you are you you're managing people's money, but you're managing in the best interests of the client, right? So the client first. So the first thing you always want to do is just listen. You just want to listen. You don't listen to what they want. It's not what you want. It's what they want. Right. And if they feel comfortable being able to express what they want, their objectives and goals and you know what they're trying to accomplish, and you're not forcing anything onto them, then they're more prompt to listen. And, and I, I find that a lot with a lot of the people that I've met that's referred to me, if you will. They would always say, you know, you make me feel comfortable because I don't feel like you're selling me anything. Yeah. Right. And, and, and again, because I'm educating, I'm just listening. I'm listening what you want. We do fact finders, so to speak. And then once I have that, then I come back. I always send I always send someone a summary. So if we met, you and I would meet, mm-hmm. we'd do the conversation, fact finder, go through the goals, objectives. And then once we have that, I would write down a summary and send it back to you and say, well, this is based on what you said. And if you want to move forward, that's fine. Then we can move forward because I'm based on what you said. Because people can, we, we call it, you know, when people, they can sense that it's all about commission, right? Yes. And then they feel you being sold all the time. Then they're going to, they're going to be very, like this, you know, this person's just trying to sell. And we know that, you know, I always say, if you want to clean a room out, you want to clear out a room quickly, you go in there and say you sell life insurance, everybody leave, right? Because they say, this guy trying to sell me something, right? And we find that all the time when people are um, engaged in something they enjoy or passionate about. Mm-hmm. They start selling it and it just it turns away their friends because it's constantly they're being sold on something. It's constantly being sold. So you have to listen to them and then you're giving advice, just giving advice. And they can take it, move on, do what they want to do. Or they can work with you, whatever the case may be. But you're giving advice. 
from the educational aspect. And how I operate is all about education, is all about the model. And once you go through the model and start saying, well, you know what? Yeah, this guy's right. <laughs> there are some things that I need to do and he's not selling me on anything and I trust what he's doing. And then you have referrals. Always, you always get referrals. Hey, let me, it's, it's two or three people that I can speak to about you randomly. Give me three numbers. I'll call one or two and just ask them questions about you in particular, you, how you operate and you as a person. And then once they find that out, they say, okay, I can work with this person. But what we find is that we're trying to sell so much and sell so much and sell so much because that's what we do. If I'm a life insurance salesman, I sell life insurance. We're not talking about the financial planning model. We're just talking about life insurance, right? If I'm if I am all about investments, I'm doing about investments. I'm not worried about life insurance, right? Because it's all about investments. Right. But as a planner like myself and other ones that are out there, we can we can provide any service for you. So it's not about what I want. It's about what you want, because at the end of the day, I want you to be happy. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure that you can get to to stage five, which is financial well-being. To me, that's the key. And then along the way, we're giving you the knowledge to be able to transfer that wealth in terms of generational wealth. Well, listeners, you heard it right here on Square Root Justice with Rachel Atreides from Dr. Counselor Joaquin Wallace. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Remember that. That was yes. uh, very well said because that is, that's a, a bottom line is trust, rapport, and, you know, having that comfortability level with someone because you're talking about everything you work for pretty much. Yeah. You're talking about life savings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, 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 I mean, and that's, that's anxiety on me mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you know, especially what, you know, I end with this, when you, I have clients that are like close friends, like we're, like we're friends. Right. And I, when I say to them, I have to work harder for you yeah, because I'm going to see you at the cookout. We're going to go to that concert together. You know, what I don't want you to do is to run from me or have an attitude, be attitudinal towards me. Right. Because I'm, you know, have mismanaged your money. Mm-hmm. So I have to, every client has to be taken on with that responsibility. But when you get close friends to say, here is X amount of dollars I need for you to manage this and give me the right direction, that's even more pressure. Mm-hmm. That's even more pressure because you know you're going to see them consistently. And we know friendships have been lost because of money. We know that already. And so we want to make sure that's always, you know, above board, we kind of go over those scenarios, if you will. Um, but for the most part, I, by me educating you, you're going to make the decision to do what you're going to do. Therefore, it's not it's not a hard sell. It's just educate you and figure I, it out. You know, I go beyond that. It's more than friendships. It's just relationships in general has been lost over money. <laughs> yes. You know? About yes. money. So, yeah, absolutely. I want to, um, one last thing I want to tie back into. I know you said you um, talk to young people, I think it was ages 28 through 35, mm-hmm. and they want to learn. I want to go like one age group down. And we just had the Supreme Court ruling concerning college admissions and affirmative action. Mm-hmm. How are kids just getting into college? A lot of, you know, students, they work, they get loans, student loans to go to school. 
you know, they're working, you know, work study, working a second job, third time, third job sometime. How does the financial wealth piece affect them? How how is this ruling gonna play a major factor into this? Because I have no doubt that it's going to factor into this, especially if they're taking out loans and then knowing how to get out of that. And that's a whole other topic. But I want to touch on that because that ruling is impacting a lot of people from families that's financing their, you know, kids' education, work-study programs, student loans. That was another Supreme Court decision came out, said no, the government can't pay off student loan. How does it affect them? Well, you know, I, I, I'm i a byproduct of affirmative action in terms of education, you know, so I, I, I am I, I well, I was involved in the EOP program. You remember the EOP program? Mm-hmm. You remember that? That was, you know, yeah. many moons ago, so to speak. So um, e- those programs are, they're important to have, right? I mean, it's going to impact the, for us to get in to kind of level the playing field, but it goes back again as education is so important. And it's so important that there, when you have ruling like rulings like this, it kind of, discourages you trying to get education, right? Because it's like, well, they don't want me in any way, so why am I going to do it? And then you get the misnomer that education doesn't matter. And again, education does matter. It yeah. does matter. It allows you to make uh, more rational decisions. It gives you a a, a, a tool set, if you will. And I always say it, it always, it, it, it unshackles the enslaved mentality. You know, that's that's how I look at it, because it gives you an opportunity to look at things a little bit different and level the playing field. And that's so important in terms of leveling the playing field. You're talking about self self-esteem and self-actualization. That's so important when you have education, because that, at, at least I feel I feel like I belong. I feel like I belong because educationally, I know I'm there now. We know the other factors come into play. We know that. But for the most part, I know that you can't take that away from me. And you, he, you used to hear our parents talk about all the time. They can't take education away from you, which is true. They can't take it away from you. And so, again, I, I always consistently preach on why you need to get education. This is going to impact big time. But, you know, it may open up an opportunity, though, for those to go to junior college. Yeah. That may be or the trade school. The trade school. The trade school or junior college. That may be the route to go to cut the minimize the cost, if you will. Uh, because if you go to trade school, you can come right out and you can you, you can make money sure. on a trade. We know that that's very important. If you go to junior college, you can cut down a lot of the cost going yeah. to school because you can take care of a lot of the, the two or three requirements. years, the basic yeah. requirements, and then go to school and then maybe able to get some um grants or things right. of that nature. Yeah. So it may open up other opportunities for you to kind of look at that you didn't look at before. And it, you know, I'm not going to say it's a blessing in disguise, but it may be a blessing in disguise as well too, because now I'm not concentrated, go straight to four years. I can go right to a junior college, get what I need to get and minimize my cost. Or I can go right to a trade school, get a trade and get right into the economics of it all and start making money immediately based upon my trade. Yeah, that is, is key. And I know some employers from just me doing readings, some employers are, you know, say, hey, we'll take you high school. You don't have to have a college degree. You know, uh, money may not be the same, but it's not. A lot of jobs are saying, hey, you don't need a college degree now. 
And right. that's so key for this younger generation that's coming up behind us, because as you stated earlier, it is about them when you're passing generational wealth on. It's all about them. So, Dr. You know Wallace, I can't thank you enough. You know, this has been educational food and insight for me, as well as I know the listeners will get a lot from it. Definitely look forward to having you on Square Root Justice with Rachel Atteris again. This has been awesome. And before and, and, we close out, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, if you want to, if you wanted to go and follow me, I'm on uh, Dr. J Wallace, drjwallace.com. Um, that's my website. Uh, definitely go on there. Um, we have my podcast on there. We have uh, blogs that we're going to be writing, putting on there as well. Um, look out for our um, our podcast, which is Rich Legacy, um, reimagining financial literacy. Uh, that's something we're going to talk about as well. Um, but for the most part, again, drjwallace.com. And there's articles on there, the blog. We have current articles on there already uh, that's been written about me, blogs. We're going to be doing blogs and add, adding excerpts of our um, podcast on there. And then we're going to add some of this excerpt from the podcast on there as well. Awesome. Square Root Justice listeners, you've heard it right here. Dr. Wallace, thank you for coming on. Listeners, we'll catch you on the next episode. Stay tuned. Square Root Justice with Rita LaTerese has more to come. Stay blessed. Square Root Justice. Square Root Justice.